Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 40 and chapter 41. We don't have a, a, another scripture reader today, so I am coming up at the appropriate time, uh, because it is two chapters, so I didn't want to put somebody through that. So we will, we will be reading throughout the sermon this morning, so you will get, you will get your, uh, your fill of both of those chapters. So. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we uh, are thankful again <clears throat> that you call us to abide and that we get to abide in you, to in, in, uh, in the vine um, where, we are, um, where we experience true life, true reality. And so God, I pray again as we open up your holy scriptures this morning that we would, that we would see that again, that we would see where true life is found, where we would see uh, where true reality is found, um, and that is only found in, in Christ. Um, and even way back in the Old Testament, uh, even people like Joseph understood that. And so God, I pray that you would show us that this morning. Uh, give us uh, minds to understand and hearts to receive um, these wonderful things from your holy word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I, I want us to consider how far we've come in the book of Genesis. We've been looking at Genesis over the past three, three years. Um, but I want to I just go back a little bit, well, a lot actually, to Genesis chapter 3 um, and before diving into these two chapters because I think it's easy to forget where we've come from and what Moses, our author, has been weaving throughout the events and actions in Genesis this entire time. Because if we drop all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, specifically verse 15, we'll see what it is that makes chapter 40 and 41 so significant to the story. In Genesis 3.15, if you don't remember, God says to the serpent these words, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Heal. So if you don't know this already, Genesis 3.15 is the first announcement of the gospel. So God is saying to the serpent, he's handing out these, these, these curses um, to, to all of those who have, who have been involved in the fall of mankind. And he says to the serpent, Satan, you will bruise the heel of the promised one. He will experience great suffering at your hand. But the promised one will bruise your head, which means you will experience a deadly blow from him. So what God is doing there in Genesis 3.15 is he is describing in one sentence, not even, not even a full sentence, the person and work of Christ. He's, he's declaring in 11 English words the substitutionary atoning death of Christ and his victorious and glorious resurrection. These are the deep actions of God. And these are the actions that, that Moses has been weaving throughout the story of God in the book of Genesis because the narrative is moving us closer and closer to the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. 
that the promised one, the snake crusher, is coming. And that includes what we see in our text today. But before we jump into the, to those, couple, uh, those, those two chapters, I want to give you a couple of questions to consider as we make our way through these chapters this morning. The first question is this. What would change about your life if you understood that God was at work in the deep places of your heart? Those places in your heart that not even your your spouse or those closest to you really know about. Those places in your heart that you might be ashamed if they were exposed to the world. What would it change about your life if you understood that God is at work in those places within you? And then second, what would it change about you if you knew that the way in which God is working in those deep places, but the way in which God is working in Joseph's life is the same way he is working in your life. Because I think a lot of times we can begin to look at a story like Joseph and go, he's special. You know, that's, that's what God did then in Genesis. And these are great stories that we can tell our children to, to let them see just such an, such an exemplary man and how he lived his life. But really what Moses wants to communicate throughout Genesis is you are this story. You are part of this story. You are one of the people in this story. You are exactly like them. Yeah, your circumstances may be different. You haven't been falsely accused of sexual misconduct and thrown into prison. At least I don't think you have. Um, you, you know, you're not a slave in Egypt. You're not, uh, you haven't risen to the se- second command in, in all of the known world. I'm sure that none of that's happened yet. But, but, but God is working in your situation, whatever it might be. He's working out the very principle of Romans 8.28 that says, that we read last week in Uh, It says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And Paul is purposeful there when he says all things. Not just good things, not just when you're in plenty, but also when you're in want, also when you're suffering, also when you experience loss and hurt and pain. God is using all things for your good. Now, that is a staggering truth. It's sometimes a hard truth to kind of wrap your mind around. Um, And it's something that I've titled today, The Deep Actions of God, because sometimes those deep actions don't always make uh, a lot of sense to us. But they are true. And so I want us to see those deep actions of God today in our text in three ways. God's providence in the prison God's sovereignty in the palace, and then God's plan for the future. So God's providence in the prison, God's sovereignty in the palace, and God's plan for the future. So first, God's providence in the prison, and that's all, this all taking place in chapter 40. But before we jump into chapter 40, I want, us to, I want to remind us of the verses that precede chapter 40 that are found in chapter 39, verses 19 through 23, because we might have forgotten what's going on here. So we know Joseph is falsely accused of of going after his master's wife. And then you have verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, 
This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And so I read those verses again because to, understand, to, to, under, to begin to understand God's providence in a prison, in a place like a prison, we have to remember his presence with his people. King David, who understood this well, says in Psalm 139, he says, If I ascend to the heaven, you are there, God. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. So if, I, if I'm in the highest places I can go, you're there. If I'm in the lowest places I, to go, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you. And now in chapter 40, we find our boy Joseph in a precarious situation after being falsely accused of a crime he did not commit. And yet even in the false accusation and the unjust punishment, God is with Joseph in this pit. Psalm 105, verses 16 through 19, actually describe to us uh, why God had Joseph in this situation. And it also describes to us what uh, Joseph's situation actually was. Because I think we think he may have been in some sort of um, luxury prison for like upper class prisoners that we have here in the United States where they can just kind of roam about freely. They can talk on the phone whenever they want to. This was not uh, Joseph's uh, situation here. And Psalm 105 brings that out a little bit. When it says, When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all the supply of bread, speaking about God, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. The word of the Lord tested tested him. So this passage makes clear that God put his servant Joseph in this adverse situation to test his perseverance in the promised hope of the Messiah. Will Joseph trust me? Did Joseph Joseph truly believe that God was with him and that God was fulfilling his promises through him? I mean, the man is in prison. No one, know, no one he knows knows that he's in prison. He has no advocate outside these walls. He is in a terrible situation. So did he believe that God was with him? Did he believe that God was actually fulfilling the promises through him? Well, his life would reveal the answer to these questions. Psalm 11.5 tells us plainly, the Lord test the righteous. 
And we know this is something he does. We saw it with Abraham in Genesis 22 when, when God tests him to sacrifice his son Isaac. But why does he do this? Why does he do this to Joseph? Is it some cruel joke? I mean, hasn't Joseph suffered enough? Why would God seemingly do this kind of case study on him to see if he can pass the test? But let's first remind ourselves of what a test actually is. So technically speaking, tests are not a bad thing, although some of the students in the room might think so. But a test is a way to measure someone's knowledge, skill, or resolve. So tests are designed to measure up, uh, to see if we measure up, uh, whether that be a test at school that we take, very common. Uh, You might have to take a test at work to test your knowledge of the job that you have or the job that you want. Or you're just simply taking the test at the DMV. But how do you know if God is testing you, and what is the point of him doing so? Well, being tested, as one commentator said, is a natural part of being a human being, but also a biblical design pattern that we especially see in biblical narratives like Genesis. Very clear testing happening. We mentioned Abraham in Genesis 22, but if we just go back to Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are tested in the garden. And through this testing, they have a choice between choosing to either live God's way of living, which is best, or their own way of living, which is offered up to them and enticed to them by the serpent, by Satan himself. So will they choose to trust God and to remain steadfast in God's wisdom, or will they choose to follow their own wisdom? And we know how they choose. And it leads to devastation. It leads to the fall of all mankind. We still are experiencing their choice right now. And this is the test that we see God's people faced with throughout history over and over again. Are we going to live by God's wisdom or our own wisdom? Are we going to let our sin rule us, or will we rule over our sin? Will we partner with God to bear his image in the world, or will we live our own life and bear our own image? So what we can say to that question is, uh, how do we know when we are being tested, is that we can say that you're always being tested. Every single day, you are being tested at every moment because each day and each moment is an opportunity for you to live by God's wisdom or your own wisdom. That is your choice. And then the point of testing is to make you more like Jesus. Psalm 66, 10 through 12, For you, O God, have tested us, You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden uh, on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. And the good news of the biblical story is that we don't take these tests on our own. We don't walk through them just uh, by ourselves. God himself became human 
to pass the test on our behalf. Jesus was crushed. Men rode over his head. He went through fire and through water, but he ruled over those temptations. He was tempted in every way as you and I are, and he didn't let sin devour him. And this is what enables us now to pass the test, to choose wisdom, to choose the wisdom of God day in and day out. And we see that modeled for us in the life of Joseph because as he passed the test of faithfulness in this severe situation, he is not pointing to himself and saying, look at how good I am. Look at my character. It is impeccable. Look at what I have done. No, Joseph is pointing us to Christ, to the one who truly passes the test, the one who enables Joseph to pass the test that he is in. So we can say it this way. Just to give us a bigger picture of what's happening in Joseph's life and to see God's hand upon it. Because the reason he can pass the test of faithfulness after being forced into slavery by his brothers, after his false conviction and after being placed in jail under lock and key, is because Joseph understood God's providential care of him in a prison. Even in chains, he understood God was with him and was caring for him. So Joseph's faith could not be destroyed by his circumstances at all. His circumstances could not touch his faith. So I wonder if your circumstances can touch your faith. Has, has, have you allowed the circumstances of your life, whether it be suffering or even good things, have you allowed it to enter into your faith and begin to crush it and to begin to snuff it out? Has that happened for you? Maybe it's happening right now. Maybe you, you have or you currently are facing a severe circumstance in your life and it is causing your faith to crumble. Is what you're experiencing enough to snuff out your faith? Do you have a, you, you know, ask it this way, do you, have a, do you have a tipping point? Do you have a tipping point that says, I'll trust God with my life up to this line. But if God pushes me beyond that line, that's it. No more faith, no more trusting. Well, Joseph didn't have a tipping point. And now before you start to think like Satan did when, uh, when in the book of Job, if you remember that story when Satan was coming, and he was just kind of hanging out, and, uh, and he's talking to God about Job, and he says to God, well, of course Job is praising you. Of course Job is, is one of yours and that he's not snuffing your name out. It's because you have, you, you're taking care of him. You've given him comforts and pleasures. You've given him luxuries. You've given him power. You've given him everything that everyone dreams about. But I guarantee you, if you remove your hand from him, he will curse you to his face. And so maybe you think that about Joseph, that he has some, you know, he has some, there's something special about within Joseph that this, that, yeah, of course, of course he's not going to do that. I mean, God was probably sitting there with him, you know, physically, or we think something, imagine something in our mind about that. But Joseph didn't have that. Nor did Job. 
They just understood and believed in God's providential care of them in plenty and in want. Just look at verses 14 and 15 that take place after Joseph has successfully interpreted the dreams of the Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker. Joseph says these words to these men. I mean, these guys are ecstatic. Well, at least one of them is ecstatic. The other one's just been told he's going to be, have his head chopped off or hung or whatever. So at least one's ecstatic. And Joseph says, only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. Get me out of jail, Joseph is saying. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. So in a, in a rare moment that our, that our author Moses brings in, which, I, which I, I love, we see that Joseph is not happily blinded by his situation by God. He is not kind of stupidly unaware of his sufferings. And he's just having this false sense of joy and saying, I love being in prison. I love being in these shackles. I love being sold into slavery by my family that hates me. I love this. This is so good. God is so good to me. Joseph isn't saying that. He's not unrealistically optimistic here. He is consciously aware that he is in the midst of suffering. And yet, at the same time, he is also consciously aware that God is still with him. Never once does he curse God. Never once does he blame God for his circumstances. And we see his understanding by what he says in verse 8 before interpreting his prison, uh, prison mate's dreams. He says to them, do not interpretations belong to God? God is the one who interprets you. God is the one who's giving you the dream. And God is the one who interprets the dream through me. He understands and believes that God is providentially present in the prison and is favorable to him in the interpretation of the dreams that will eventually lead Joseph to seeing the second way we see the deep actions of God in our text, and that is through his sovereignty in the palace. So look at chapter 41, and I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 14. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. So this is two whole years after, the, after his officials have been released from prison, okay? So Joseph is in, in jail two more years, 24 more months. Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And then skipping down to verse 7. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled... And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, we, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh 
sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. So I hope you're continuing to track that God's servant, sovereign purposes are, 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 are being worked out accordingly. This is what God has for Joseph. The entirety of his life is not a mistake. This is what God has for Joseph. So God isn't ruining any plans that Joseph may have had for his life. He is giving Joseph something way better, believe it or not. So what I'm saying is, if Joseph's father doesn't favor him, his brothers don't hate him. And if his brothers don't hate him enough to get him out of their life, he doesn't go to Potiphar's house as a slave. And if he doesn't go to Potiphar's house as a slave, then he doesn't get accused of sexual misconduct. And if he doesn't get accused of sexual misconduct, he doesn't end up in prison. And if he doesn't end up in prison, he doesn't end up interpreting Pharaoh's officials' dreams. And if he doesn't, and if he doesn't interpret Pharaoh's officials' dreams, he doesn't get brought out of the pit by Pharaoh himself to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, which we know leads him to put Joseph as the second command in all of Egypt. All of that had to happen for God's ultimate purpose for Joseph's life to happen. This is the working of God's sovereign plan. Think about that in your own life. I know there's an exercise that Tara and I do when we do marriage counseling with folks is we always get them to tell, um, first tell their individual story, like how did you, how did you become a Christian? So give us, give us, I always say, give us as far back as you can remember all the way up until this point you're sitting in this chair before us. And so we have them both do that. And then I say, all right, well, give us, give us your together story. And it sounds a little cheesy, but it works out. Give us your together story. How did God, because this is what we want them to see, how God sovereignly took two very different people with two very different stories and brought them together as husband and wife, or almost husband and wife. And it's his sovereign plan being worked out. I mean, think about, uh, just think about how, it, how everything that had to happen for you to be sitting in this chair right now at 11.25 a.m. on a Sunday in Augusta, Georgia at Christ the King Church. Think about everything that led up to this moment to get you here. A lot had to happen in your life for that to happen. A lot had to happen in my life, in Tara's life, in my kid's life, for that all of this to happen, all of this to transpire. That is God's sovereign plan. And everything that's happened before had to happen to get us all here. Do you believe that? For Joseph, none of this happens if he was just, live, just going about living the normal, planned-out life. This is not a goal that he had down for himself. He wasn't saying, well, maybe one day if I get falsely accused and sent into prison, and then somehow or another I'm going to be uh, lifted up to the second command to the most powerful man in all of the world. How do, how do we get on that track? That's not what Joseph's thinking. Joseph has no idea how all of this is going to work out. 
So just so you know, this is all of us, as I just talked about. We have no idea where we'll end up. We have no idea really, really what is going to happen the minute we walk out of this place. Now, yes, plan, save, get wisdom, make choices. But no, at the end of the day, God is sovereignly working out his best plan for you. Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans his way. Nothing wrong with that. But the Lord establishes his steps. Remember that. So in chapter 41, we, are really see, we really see God's sovereignty shine over and above Joseph and Pharaoh. Because a major part of this theme is the dreams of Pharaoh. This is, why Je- this is why he pulls Joseph out of the pit. This is the only reason he pulls Joseph out of the pit. Because he is perplexed by his dreams. Look at verses 1 through 6. Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven full ears. And then verse 8 tells us, his spirit was troubled. So, so, so what that means is, that his spirit was troubled, is this isn't just a little, a little terror you feel after waking from a nightmare. You know that initial feeling you have after you have, you've had a scary dream and you wake up and you have to figure out where you are and that what's happening in your dream isn't actually happening in real life and you're just like, whoa, okay, that's good. It's, that's not happening. Uh, I'm awake. I'm alive. Everybody in my family's alive. All of those things are happening. This isn't like a, a fever dream that, that, uh, that Pharaoh is having here. This is a dream that is staying with him in his waking hours. It is giving him an anxiety. He is, he is worried, and he knows nothing about what these dreams mean. All he knows is it's bad. Which is why he calls on all the magicians in the land. He calls on all of his wise men to come and interpret this dream for me. Figure this out for me. Bring me comfort with your interpretation and none of them can do it. They are helpless to interpret the dream. And so what we have to recognize in this, in this kind of brief, small moment where his counselors and his magicians cannot interpret the dream, in this moment, Pharaoh, arguably the most powerful ruler in all of the world, all of the known world at this time, is essentially rendered powerless by God through his dreams. And it's Joseph, poor Joseph, who reveals this to Pharaoh in his interpretations of the dreams. Now, I want to read for us verses 15 through 32. It's a longer section of chapter 41. But I think it's good for us to hear these words that Joseph says to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, 
I have, met, I, I have had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I have heard, heard it said about you that you can hear a dream and interpret it. I am not able to, Joseph answered Pharaoh. I love that. It is God who will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, In my dream I was standing on the bank of the Nile when seven well-fed, healthy-looking cows came up from the Nile and grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, weak, very sickly and thin, came up. I've never seen such sickly ones as these in all the land of Egypt. Then the, the thin, sickly cows ate the first seven well-fed cows. When they had devoured them, you could, tell, you could not tell that they, had been that they had devoured them. Their appearance was as bad as it had been before. Then I woke up. In my dream, I, I also saw seven heads of grain, full and good, coming up on one stalk. After them, seven heads of grain, uh, withered, thin, and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up. The thin heads of grain swallowed the seven good ones. I told this to the magicians, but no one can tell me what it means. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams mean the same thing. The seven thin, sickly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven worthless, scorched heads of grain are seven years of famine. It is just as I told Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt. After them, seven years of famine will, will take place, and all the abundance in the land of Egypt will be forgotten. The famine will devastate the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because of the famine that follows it, for the famine will be very severe. Since the dream was given twice to Pharaoh, it means that the matter has been determined by God, and he will carry it out soon. So basically... Joseph, who has just been released from prison, okay? Joseph doesn't want to be in prison anymore. Joseph wants out. So basically, what Joseph does here is he tells Pharaoh, the most powerful man in all of the world, the very worst news that you could tell the ruler of any nation. A famine is coming, and it will devastate your country. Food will be scarce, and your people will die. But something more important to see in Joseph's interpretation is who he credits for all of this. And he makes no apologies for it. Verse 16. Immediately, it is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Verse 25. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. What he, God, is about to do. And then verse 32 and the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. So not only does Joseph give Pharaoh his nightmare come true, he tells him with confidence, all of this is from God. God is going to do this very work. It is all coming from his hand. So what Joseph is doing there is pointing Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler in all the land, to the very power of his God, which essentially cripples Pharaoh to the will of God, whether he likes it or not. He is now firmly in God's hand. 
So much like in the New Testament, when you see uh, Herod, who could not stop the birth of Jesus, uh, and with Pilate, who had only the power that was given him by God, all of these men, all of these rulers had a lot of power, but they were all rendered powerless against God. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, He turns it wherever he will. That is a good verse as we approach an election season in 2024. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. God turns it wherever he wills. So God is clearly in control of the happenings of this world, no matter how powerful a ruler or leader may seem to you. God is more powerful. But not only does he turn the will of the powerful, he also turns the will of the ones who are not so powerful, like Joseph. So Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams. Um, After he does this, he is almost immediately moved into the second highest position in all of the land. Look at verses 37 through 45. The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants, servants, And he said to them, can can we find anyone like this, a man who has God's spirit in him? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as discerning and wise as you are. You will be over my house and all my people will obey your commands. Only I as king will be greater than you. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, see, I am placing you over all the land of Egypt Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him with fine linen garments and placed a gold chain around his neck. He had Joseph ride in his second chariot and servants called out before him, make way. So he placed him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and no one will be able to raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt without your permission. And then Pharaoh gave Joseph a new new name. Pharaoh gave him a wife. um, And Joseph ruled throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph's rise to power is meteoric. It is massive. He he rises from a slave. Well, he first rises from a a punk 17-year-old to then a slave, to then prison, to then essentially prime minister... Of Egypt. I mean, that is quite the resume that Joseph has. There is nothing in his life, in and of himself, that should have him in a position like this. But this is where God places him. He marries into the into uh, Egyptian into the Egyptian royal family, and he rules with wisdom. But recognize. That even in his success, he doesn't forget that it is God's sovereign hand that it's been upon him this entire time. I have seen people personally uh, go from rags to riches. They go from poor to making a great amount of money and success. And when in rags, they sought after the Lord with diligence But when in riches, seeking the Lord no longer. 
I've made my mark, they say. I've risen to success, and I don't need God anymore, they declare. But if that is your temptation, and it could be for some of you who have the potential, if you're not already making a lot of money, you have the potential to make a lot of money and to be very, very successful in the career that you have chosen. I want you to remember Paul's words. I read these last week in Philippians chapter 4 that says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Because Paul, like Joseph, understood the one thing that is constant in their life is their God. He never changes. He never goes away. He never forsakes them. And we see Joseph uh, declare this very truth when he names, simply just names his two children in verses 51 and 52. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. So through the naming of his son, and every time he called out his son's name, he would remember, yes, I went through hardship. Yes, my, my, the people in my father's house hated me to the point of death. But God has made me forget all of that. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Because it's God who continues to fulfill the promise of Genesis 3.15 in his people. And he will continue, continue to do that until all of that is accomplished. He will continue to work out his promises and work out his blessings in the line of promise in his people until it is accomplished. And we see that at the very end of chapter 41 in two verses, verses 56 and 57. Because the third way we see the deep actions of God is in his plans for the future. Look at verses 56 and 57. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. So already we're being told that Joseph's work is massively important but also massively successful. Not only does he save the lives of the Egyptian people in verse 56, he saves the lives of people from all over the earth. In verse 57. But even as there is a, a, a present reality being fulfilled in these verses, and they have to be fulfilled because, as we'll see as we move through the, the final chapters of Genesis, uh, Joseph being in the position he's in is actually saving the line of promise through, giving, through this food program that he has begun in Egypt. So that while the present reality is being fulfilled in these verses, there is also a future reality that is being pointed to that will be fulfilled ultimately in Christ. Because God's purpose to bless the nations through Abraham, way back in Genesis chapter 12, if you remember that, he will, he will bless Abraham, his people, and the land that they, will, that they will live in. 
are prefigured here in Genesis chapter 41 through Joseph's international food program. God is revealing to us that this promise that he gave to to Abraham back in Genesis 12 is being fulfilled through Joseph. But this promise is brought to fulfillment, ultimate fulfillment, through Christ in the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. A, A place of extraordinary fruitfulness in a place where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is the king. And that is our future hope. And the implications of this future reality can be found in Paul's words in Romans chapter 8. Turn there with me. In verses 18 through 25, I read these in my, one of my devotional times this week that I thought fit well with what we're learning about in Joseph's life. That is, very, that is very true for you and I. So Romans 8, 18-25 says, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, so think about the sufferings that you may be experiencing right now in the present, or just the sufferings that you see when you turn the news on, or listen to the news on your way home. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay unto the glorious freedom of God's children." For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. And not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan with our, with our, within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience." So Paul is saying that whatever sufferings you are experiencing personally, whatever sufferings that you are seeing throughout the world are normal. We are inwardly groaning. Creation is groaning for the the return of their Redeemer, Christ, to come. But Paul says, and I love this, that those sufferings are not even comparable. Not even comparable to the glories that will be revealed to you in Christ one day. They don't hold a candle to them. And this is what we're moving toward. Whatever suffering you're facing, you can face with hope because of this reality that the glory that you will experience and live in will far outweigh any suffering that you will experience now on earth or you will experience in the future in your life. That God's deep actions are fulfilling in you the reality of Genesis 3.15. That Satan is defeated. That death is defeated. That sin is defeated. And you are able to say, as Joseph did in verse 51, when he's naming his first child, 
God has made me forget all my hardship. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.